This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome. You're listening to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. I am your host, Dustin Smith. Thank you so much for joining us this week at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode 172, which is Mark's High Human Christology, chapter 14. We are nearing the end of our ongoing study of Mark's Christology, a Christology that is somewhere between a low and a high Christology. Since Jesus is an authentic human being, portrayed in Mark, who is greatly authorized and highly empowered by the God of Israel. So it's not exactly a low, merely a man Christology, and it's certainly not a high, divine, Jesus is God Christology. It's somewhere in the middle. Now I actually have a lot of really cool and new topics in the feed for future podcast because I'm working with some cutting-edge biblical scholarship that is actually going to further strengthen the biblical Unitarian position. So please look forward to the upcoming episodes. In this week's episode, however, we will look at Mark chapter 14, which outlines events in the final days before the cross. Many of these stories revolve around the person of Jesus, his messianic role, and his relationship to God. We will first explore the account of Jesus being anointed with a costly perfume. Not a typical story in studies of Christology, but I assure you it furthers Mark's agenda in defining and redefining what it means to be the Son of God. Next, we will look at Jesus' prayer language to God in Gethsemane and draw conclusions from the way Jesus addresses God in a way that was deeply memorable for early Christians. Lastly, we will look at the trial of Jesus with the leaders in Jerusalem, examine the arguments in the questions asked of Jesus, and attempt to make sense of the blasphemous charge labeled against Jesus upon revealing who he truly is. Does the charge of blasphemy indicate that Jesus thought of himself as divine or as God? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is the anointing and redefinition of Son of God. We are in Mark chapter 14, and I'm starting in verse 3. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus says, 
Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. That's Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. Now I mentioned that this is an overlooked passage when it comes to studies of Christology. But I do think that this particular passage continues to further Mark's agenda of defining Son of God and redefining Son of God to include the notion that the Son of God, that is the anointed messianic king, is someone who has to suffer and die on behalf of the people. If you recall, in Judaism, prior to Christianity coming around, the expectations of the Messiah did not include that the Messiah would suffer and die. The Messiah was a royal figure. He was a kingly figure. He was a powerful figure in whom God would bring about his just rule and reign. We can see with this woman her actions in that she poured the vial over his head. And that is clearly a sign of anointing. And remember that Messiah means the one who is anointed. That's what Christ means. And the one who is anointed is anointed for the role and vocation of being king. So here we have a anointing service for Jesus. But the anointing, according to Jesus, is that his body was anointed beforehand for the burial, which combines the themes of Jesus being the anointed king and the fact that that king is going to suffer and die. Now, Jesus has already been officially anointed in the gospel back in chapter 1, where God anointed Jesus at Jesus' baptism. And at that point, the voice from heaven announced that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messianic King. But this time, the anointing is very specifically linked with his death. And it raises the question about Jesus' role as the anointed one, namely the Christ, and his death, and how we should think of those terms together. Now, Mark, as a storyteller, is again pointing the reader here to this redefinition of what it means to be Messiah. Remember, the Messiah is not just the God-appointed ruler over the kingdom. For Mark, and for early Christians, to be Messiah also meant that you are the representative of the people who suffers and dies for the people. And Mark has been bringing about this redefinition throughout the gospel, but there are some very specific points where Mark has really tried to hammer this home. The most important one is the confession of Peter in Mark chapter 8. Of course, Peter said to Jesus that you are the Christ. 
He acknowledges that Jesus is the anointed king, the king of the kingdom of God. But Jesus followed this confession with the statement that Jesus must suffer and die, thus redefining what it means to be the Son of God. Now, there was pushback on this particular point by Peter himself, and Jesus regarded this particular pushback, this pushback suggesting that the Son of God does not include concepts of suffering and dying as a representative for the people. Jesus actually regarded this pushback as satanic. And so we have Jesus revealing a theme, we have pushback on the theme, and we have Jesus rebuking that particular pushback. There are other points in the narrative of Mark's Gospel where the theme of the anointed Son of God is combined with the fact that the Son of God is a representative that suffers and dies for people. We have predictions of the Son of Man, and remember the Son of Man, according to Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, is the one who is given dominion and kingship. And the Son of Man is regularly predicted as the one who is going to be rejected and killed. So we have a human being given dominion and kingship who is going to suffer and die. And those various predictions of the suffering Son of Man are quite common in the second half of Mark's Gospel. Now in Mark chapter 10, verse 37, we have James and John, the two Zebedee brothers, asking to sit at Jesus' right and left hand in his kingdom. Now, this is followed up by a response of whether they are able to drink the cup of suffering. So Jesus there is defining that kingship and ruling is something that is going to be combined with suffering. And of course, those at the right and left hand of Jesus at the end of the gospel are those that are crucified next to Jesus at his right and his left hand, where Jesus is drinking the cup of suffering. And it's not surprising that on top of Jesus' cross, he is defined as the king of the Jews. There again, king of the Jews is someone who suffers and dies. Lastly, we can point out that the parable of the wicked tenants in Mark chapter 12 has Jesus talking about the rejected stone of the temple, and stone is a pun for son, namely son of God, and that stone is the son that is rejected, referring to the death of Jesus. And so we have son of God being the anointed king, and he is rejected like the rejected stone. So we have the rejected and killed Son of God, indicating that the Messianic Son of God is combined with the theme of rejection and death. So the episode here with the woman who anoints Jesus in preparation for his death continues Mark's theme of redefining what it means to be the Son of God. It's another narrative indicator that the role of the Son of God is being redefined to include the death of Jesus. And of course, if Jesus is repeatedly predicted that he's going to die, then this points to the fact that he is mortal. He is capable of dying. 
which is the natural human condition. 10 out of 10 humans die. God, of course, has shared many of God's prerogatives with Jesus, the ability to forgive sins, authority, kingship, the ability to control the elements, but God has not shared with Jesus God's immortality. That does not happen until the resurrection. Jesus is mortal. Jesus is susceptible to death, and Jesus does die, indicating that he is a genuine human being. Let's move to our second point. Point number two is Jesus' prayer language and the battle of two wills. We are in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 35. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It's Mark 14, verses 35 through 36. And I want to give special attention to this word, Abba, which is an Aramaic word. And this was a memorable word for early Christians because we can actually see it reappearing in the letters of Paul in Galatians 4, verse 6, and Romans 8, verse 15. And this, of course, demonstrates that Jesus was remembered for speaking this phrase in Aramaic and that it was passed on in its original Aramaic saying. It wasn't translated into Greek in these Greek-speaking contexts like Paul's letters and even here in Mark's Gospel. Now, there are some people that mistakenly think that Abba means daddy. This is not the type of language that an infant would say. It's not baby speak. It's not baby gibberish that an infant would say to the infant's father. We actually have instances of grown men within Jewish literature referring to someone else as Abba. This is just a word to address a father figure in a deep and intimate way. That is what Abba in Aramaic meant within the first century. So it's not baby speak, as it's often commonly taught. It refers to a close relationship between the speaker and the father figure. They have an intimate relationship, a very deep relationship. Now, Jesus has already regarded God as Father within the Gospel of Mark. And so Jesus here addressing God as Father is not something new. It's something that we have come to expect. In Mark 8.38, the Son of Man is going to return in the glory of his Father. In Mark 11.25, Jesus taught his disciples to pray and forgive so that their Father in heaven will forgive them. So the father is the father of Jesus and the father is the father of the disciples. In chapter 13, verse 32, the father alone knows the day and the hour of the son of man's coming. The reader of Mark has known that God is the father because 
the voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1 and during the transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, this particular voice addresses Jesus as my son. If Jesus is the son of God, then God is the father of Jesus. That much is very clear. And since Jesus is already taught in the Gospel of Mark that God is one single person, then we know that Jesus' address to the Father is an address to God in his fullness. One could not presume, based on what Mark has demonstrated within the narrative of the Gospel, that Jesus is only addressing one person in a God that supposedly consists in a plurality of persons. No. God is one person, and Jesus has repeatedly taught that God is the Father. Now, there is the issue of the two wills. Jesus speaks of his will, and he speaks of the will of the Father. One will belongs to Jesus, because Jesus has one will, and one will belongs to the Father, and the Father clearly has a single will. Now, if Jesus only has one will, one desire, one purpose, then Jesus is not being presented as a fully divine and fully human person bearing two wills bound up in one being. Jesus has one will because he is an authentic human being. So this is not Jesus wrestling between a supposed divine nature and a human nature, which one is going to get the upper hand, which one is going to be obedient. No, Jesus is depicted here as having a single will that he submits to the will of the Father. And let's talk a little bit about this submission, this act of obedience. Because Jesus' will, which seems to be undecided, in fear, and perhaps even wavering at one particular point. Jesus submits his will ultimately to the will of the Father in what can be called an act of obedience. And if Jesus submits to the will of the Father, and if Jesus is obedient to the will of the Father, then Mark is not presenting Jesus in a way that is co-equal to God. Jesus is subordinate. Jesus is obedient. There's no co-equality with God and Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And of course, Jesus is describing the cup, the cup of suffering, which we alluded to earlier in Mark chapter 10 with the cup that Jesus asked James and John if they were able to take the cup of suffering. So there's a lot of interesting points there about Jesus' prayer language to God as Father, maintained in its Aramaic form, that addresses God as Father, and Jesus submits to the will of God. Let's move to our third and final point, point number three, the trial and Jesus' Christological confession. We are still in Mark chapter 14. Let's start in verse 55. Now the chief priest and the whole council kept 
trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. It's Mark 14, verses 55 through 64. Now, the trial of Jesus here is where he openly admits his identity to the public, namely to these representatives of the Jewish people. And the flow of the story is important for making sense of what transpires. The details in this particular account are absolutely vital. First, false witnesses arise to suggest that Jesus has claimed in the first person that he would destroy the temple and make another temple. Readers of Mark are aware that Jesus never said these things. In Mark chapter 13, verse 2, Jesus said that the temple would be torn down, speaking in the passive voice. Jesus also gave a parable of the wicked tenants where he subversively suggested that their rejected stone would become the chief cornerstone, which is the equivalent of the remaking of the temple based around the rejected son. But it does not regard the son as the active agent of the temple's destruction. Furthermore, Jesus reapplied the primary temple functions to his disciples in Mark chapter 11 noting that it is within this reorganized group of people that functions like prayer and forgiveness are to take place. The point remains, however, that Jesus never said the things verbatim that the witnesses are claiming. But they got this information from somewhere. They had some sort of implication that Jesus was against the temple and that Jesus would remake the temple in some manner. Now, the questioning about the temple leads to a direct questioning by the high priest himself about Jesus being the Son of God. So it goes from temple to Son of God. And this connection between temple and Son of God makes sense because... It was widely understood 
that the Jewish king possessed authority over the temple. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 13, the Son of God is to be the builder of God's house. In Zechariah chapter 6, the branch of David, the Messianic king, would be the temple builder. So if Jesus is the temple builder, then he might think of himself as Messiah, as the Jewish king. This is a natural progression of thought. This is something the high priest understood. So he goes and he asks Jesus directly if Jesus is the Son of God. An affirmative answer to this question, by the way, in and of itself would not be blasphemous. I'm going to say that again. To claim to be the Son of God, if one truly is the Son of God, is not a blasphemous claim. There is nothing blasphemous about being the authentic Messiah. So there's something else in the answer of Jesus that brought about the charge of blasphemy. Now Jesus responds to the question, are you the Son of God, with an affirmative answer, a basic affirmative answer. He's saying, it is as you say. And he goes on to further clarify his role as Messiah. And in doing so, Jesus cites two passages that are vitally important for this context. Psalm 110, verse 1, and Daniel 7, verse 13. And when Jesus cites these, he actually mixes them together in his answer. Now, by citing Psalm 110, verse 1, which says in Hebrew that Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. By citing Psalm 110, verse 1, Jesus is claiming, in this passage, to being the Son of Man. He says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Who is the Son of Man? Answer, the Son of Man is the authorized human being who, according to Psalm 110, verse 1, will be vindicated to God's right hand. Now, it's a lofty and bold claim for this relatively unknown Galilean peasant to make to these elite leaders of Jerusalem. For this peasant to say that he is going to be vindicated to God's right hand and to say that he is the authorized human being, this is pretty bold. But in a trial setting, claiming to be one who would be vindicated to God's right hand meant that Jesus was in the right and, by default, the leaders and the high priest were in the wrong. This could warrant the charge of blasphemy, but I think there's a little bit more in the story that gives a deeper picture. In the second citation, this is actually the dangerous citation that Jesus makes. Hear me out. Jesus alludes to Daniel 7 verse 13, again claiming to be the authorized Son of Man. However, the context of Daniel 7.13 is very important to keep in mind. In Daniel chapter 7, four evil beasts 
which represent the chaotic and ungodly nations that come out from the unstable waters. These four beasts attack and harass and persecute the people of God. It is only when the Ancient of Days empowers the Son of Man with dominion, glory, and kingship that the people of God are vindicated. So if Jesus regards himself as the righteous, empowered, soon-to-be-vindicated representative of the people of God within the trial as the Son of Man, then those around him in the trial must represent the evil, chaotic, ungodly beasts of Daniel 7. Who are those surrounding Jesus in the trial? The high priest, the chief priest, and the members of the Sanhedrin. And to imply that this group of elite religious men, especially the high priest, who was an anointed figure as well, to suggest that these are representing evil, chaotic, demonic, ungodly beasts would definitely bring about the charge of blasphemy. I contend that it is the context of Daniel chapter 7 where the Son of Man is vindicated as the representative of the people that are being attacked by these ungodly chaotic beasts. It is that context that Jesus cites, has in mind, and is understood to be blasphemous. Now in Jesus' confession here before the high priest, he is clear to consistently make a distinction between himself and God. And this is important for us to point out. By citing Psalm 110 verse 1, Jesus claims to be the second figure, not the first figure, who is Yahweh. In fact, Jesus respectfully and reverentially uses a circumlocution for Yahweh referring to Yahweh as power. Jesus is going to sit at the right hand of power. And Jesus claims to be the human being who is authorized by God. By agreeing with the question posed by the high priest, Jesus claims to be the son of the blessed one, a title that differentiates the son from the one who is blessed. Jesus' confession therefore, is not claiming to be God or claiming to be divine in any way. The Jewish officials, however, did not think that Jesus was the true Messiah and that his confession was false and disrespectfully blasphemous. So in conclusion, we have observed that the narrative of the Gospel of Mark continues to unpack its Christological depiction of Jesus in the final days before the cross. We first noted that an unnamed woman anointed Jesus' head with an expensive perfume, and the anointing is regarded as pertaining to Jesus' burial. By combining the themes of anointing and death, Mark continues to redefine the meaning of the anointed Son of God to be a vocation that includes suffering 
and dying for the people. Second, we observe that Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane addressed God in a deep and intimate manner, regarding him as Abba, Father. In doing so, Jesus submitted his own will to the will of the Father, thus demonstrating his dependence on and subordination to his Father. Lastly, we examine the trial of Jesus, wherein the themes of temple and Christology are directly confronted. Jesus openly admits to being the Son of God, while at the same time confesses to being the authorized, empowered, and soon-to-be-vindicated Son of Man, exalted to God's right hand and coming again. By framing the trial in terms of the Jerusalem leadership against the Son of Man, Jesus situates his opponents in terms of the setting of Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man stands opposite the ungodly and chaotic beast which results in a charge of blasphemy from the high priest. In the final days for Jesus' death, the narrative of Mark consistently lays out a Christological perspective that is best deemed a high human Christology, not a high divine Christology. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Join us next week as we conclude our study on the Gospel of Mark. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote these very important truths. If you want to offer a donation, please check out the episode's description for a PayPal link. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. Its host is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks, please take care.